I've been a student of last words for a while. Uh, I've, I kind of fell on this uh, and heard a lot of really good stories of the last things people said before they died before I realized I ought to be writing those down or keeping a file on them. And so some of them I don't have um, the background that I would prefer to have. Here's an example of why I think it's important that we understand the last words that people say before they die. They often reveal something about their approach to living. For instance, um, the story is from the Civil War and a Confederate officer in a skirmish line with the uh, Union forces uh, towards evening one night stood up at the outpost that was overlooking what would be the battlefield and in the far distance was the, uh, the northern Union forces and one of the soldiers with that Confederate officer said, sir, you should keep your head down because they have uh, sharpshooters over there and uh, it's not safe for you to be here. To which the Confederate officer said, those blank Yankees couldn't hit the broad. And that's when the bullet hit him in the head and killed him. <laughs> it reveals something about his life those last words did. Joan Crawford, I'm told, on her deathbed, just before she died, someone was there praying for her, and her response to that person was, don't you dare ask God to help me. Last words are important. Preachers recognize that, and so at those final moments that a pastor has with his church before he leaves, he often tries to say things to that church that will reinforce some of what he's given his life to say. When I left First Baptist Church of Edinburgh, I preached a series that was tied to basic things you need to put in place in your life to live the Christian life well. Before Larry left here, he left a fork underneath the chairs in the worship center. There was a point to that. Last words are important. Which brings us to 1 John chapter 5 because John now is pushing to the finish line of this little letter. And in this letter, which is a cyclical argument, he makes four basic points and he'll circle around with those. And he makes a point and he substantiates it and then he'll make another point and he'll substantiate that one. And then he'll come back to one of the other ones he's already made and talk about it a little bit and move on. And he just, in this revolving pattern, continues to lay out these four basic points. And so when we come to these last few verses of chapter 5, John is saying to these workers, uh, these Christian people, you need to remember some things. Because as I finish this, now I, I'm sure that John didn't anticipate there being a second or a third John after he wrote 1 John. Uh, this was a letter to this group of people and he was trying to help them in their Christian life. And so as I close, he says, here's some things. And he gives three different statements all beginning with we know. Now, knowing has a high premium for us these days. It's that time of the year. How many of you in here are, are educators, whether homeschool, public school, secondary education, all that? Okay, so a moment of silence for the teachers. 
Those of you who are in the education field recognize how important it is to know something. It is so important that in the state of Texas, those muckety-mucks in Austin understand that it's important that students know some things. And so they have blessed the public school system with this little device called the STAR test. That was the students. Doesn't it make perfect sense that a professional educator would be judged according to their value as an educator by the way a student performs on a particular test? Somebody thinks that it's important that those kids know some things. John thinks so too. Because he comes to this in chapter 5 of 1 John, beginning in verse 18, and he says, We know, that's the first of the three, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Here's the second one, verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And now the third one, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. John says, we know these three things. But in saying that, what he is essentially saying to that group of readers stretching all the way down to us today is that there are key pieces of this whole thing we call the Christian life that we need to hang on to. So my question to you today is, what do you know? When it comes to those fundamental elements to put in place in your Christian life, what do you know? I just have to tell you that This is one of those sermons that is very short on explanation and long on application. Um, Because what we find here, beginning in verse 18, is a basic truth. Here's the truth. Now, it's not going to be the first time we've seen it in this. As I said, it's a cyclical argument, and he continues to make this point and reinforce it. But here's the basic truth. Habitual sin is incompatible with the Christian life. All right, in case you missed that, let me stop and say it again. Habitual sin is incompatible with the Christian life. That's verse 18. It's not the first time we've seen it. He says there, I'll read it again. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. He said that before to us in chapter 2, verse 1. I'll read that very quickly. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. In chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, he says this, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. Verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So the simple truth, well, it's simple to say, it's not simple to live necessarily, or at least just a quick study of American Christianity tells me it's not easy to live, is that habitual sin is incompatible with the Christian life. Well, if that's true, 
It is true. But if it's true or since it's true, why do we as Christian people suffer so much from habitual sin? Let me stop for a I'm going to try to give you what I think are two answers to that. Uh, and really, I'm going to state them the way I think I hear them a lot as a pastor and as I hear them as they leak out in conversations in the media and in just the secular circle of life in America today. Two basic lies that we, even as Christians, may have swallowed and with that, it causes us to take a soft stand on holiness. Now, let me come back to the holiness statement for a second. John is stating and reiterating and restating and coming back and building his case throughout the course of this little letter. Holiness is not an option in the life of a Christian. Now we can get all messed up and get tripped up on what holiness looks like and some of us immediately go in our minds to people who live out in the desert and wear strange looking clothes and beat themselves over the back with whips as flagellating themselves in order to drive out their sinful passions. Uh, that's really not what holiness looks like. If you really want to know what holiness looks like, just look at the life of Jesus. And it's important that we get this And part of John's argument, I think, and certainly as we find throughout Jesus' ministry and the whole New Testament, holiness is, hear me very carefully now, holiness is the primary tool in effective evangelism. Now, I know in our churches, we've come up with all these schemes and all these nice little programmatic kind of things about how you go out and you share your faith and we teach people to memorize these things. But let me tell you, the biggest draw for the Christian life is somebody who gets the Christian life, who understands that it is a relationship with Jesus and you walk with him and you become more like him. There was no person who ever walked the face of this planet who was more appealing to lost people than Jesus was. John happens to be one of those who was drawn to him. So John writes in this, there there are inner dynamics to church life. Love each other, he says. He's careful in that to talk about our joy being complete and the fellowship that we have with one another. But this drumbeat throughout the course of this letter has been, be holy. You don't, entertain habitual sin in your life if you're walking with Christ. Okay, so let me stop for a second and clarify a thing. First of all, John is not saying that you will never sin. We know that because in chapter 1, verse 9, he says if we confess our sin, that's written as a way of saying, you know, since we know we're going to sin, when you do sin, make sure that you confess it and then he, that is Christ, is faithful and just to cleanse you and forgive you from all sin. John builds into it the way, the mechanism for us to deal with the sin that we have. But he also quickly comes to that to say, but, but don't let sin just rule the day in your life. It's not that we're not ever going to sin. Neither is it that because we're saved, we can live like we want to. So before I get into the full-blown application of this, I'm through with the explanation. Let's get to the application. But before I do that, let me just give you a chance to kind of settle in. And from your own point of reference, what is that sin in your life that seems to just rule the day? 
In the book of Hebrews, I believe it is, there's a verse that says that something about the sin that so easily besets us. Lay aside that sin. I think that part of what the writer of Hebrews is saying to us there is that we're all prone to a particular area of sin in our lives. Shoplifting may not be your thing, but pride might be. And that sin that so easily besets us is the one that we don't have to think about to commit. It's just the one that's where we're at. It's, it's where we live. And that's that habitual sin that we're talking about here. And so as we come to that, let me just see if I can give you two lies that our society seems to have embraced. And maybe as Christian people, we've pulled and bought into those lies. And let's see if it doesn't have something to say to us in this. Here's the first one. It is that lie that says relative to my own sin, well, you know, I just can't help it. I I just, you know, I just can't help it. So now's a good time for me to, um, you know, one of the hidden talents that I have is that I am a dog whisperer. Well, okay, so that's really not true. Um, uh, One of my favorite cartoons of all time was that series called The Far Side. Now, it's been a long time since that was out, but if you can find those, you ought to go back. One of the, re- the things I liked about that, I think the guy's name was Gary Larson or something like that. Uh, he's probably a reprobate, I don't know, but I liked what he wrote. And one of the reasons I like what he wrote is because he put into the mouths of animals what he was thinking, or better said, what he thought they might be thinking. Now, see, I do that all the time. That's just a twisted thing. So I I call myself a dog whisperer because I know what my dogs are thinking. Or at least I pretend that I do. So let me talk to you about my dog, Nanook. You remember the crack dog? Um, One of the things that that happened when we moved to Lumberton, Nanook understood something about life that he had never been able to understand before. And that is that there are these other animals called squirrels. And we didn't have squirrels where we came from. And so when we moved to Lumberton and stuck him out in the backyard, forever banishing him from the house, um, all, it was okay with him because he, he understood that there was other wildlife out there. And many times I would look out in the backyard and I would see Nanook sitting there. And it didn't matter where he was in the yard. Occasionally he would sit up and he'd perk up and his ears would go straight up. And he would just stare out. And I knew what he was thinking. He was thinking, if you just bob a tail, I'm coming after you. I know that that's what he's thinking because he would go into that crouch mode and he would start working his way back towards something. Then all of a sudden, wham, he'd take off at a dead run and I'd look back there and there'd be a squirrel pop up and take off running. Now, sometimes he would catch those squirrels. When he would do that, he would bring them to the back porch and leave them for Teresa. (laughs) Now, here's the deal with that. Most of the time, Nanook the crack dog could not catch the squirrel. And so he opted for the second part of who he was. If I can't catch you, I'm going to bark at you until my owner kills me. (laughs) You, You know that dog? You've seen that dog. And so here's the problem. Here's a problem with that. Uh, neighbors, this is a good public service announcement for you, okay? Neighbors don't like yapping dogs. 
And so I became concerned about my dog and the effect on the neighbors. Now, I came about this honestly because when I was a kid living at home, junior high and high school, uh, we lived in a house in Odessa and immediately across the street was a lawnmower sales and service uh, establishment. And they had a series of break-ins there. And so one of the things that they did to, to try to solve the break-in problem is they got a full-grown Doberman and stuck him in the fence in the back. Which sounds like a great idea unless you live across the street from that establishment. And that dog, on a regular basis, about the time my parents started going to bed, the reason I say it that way is because my dad, um, I don't want to get him, what is the statute of limitations on animal cruelty? Um, this dog was pinned up directly across the street is a side street, so maybe 20 yards, 15 yards from my parents' bedroom window. And I can remember hearing my dad, as that dog started barking, I can remember hearing my dad storming up and throwing stuff around. And so he shot him. I, you know, I don't know what else to say other than he shot him. Many times he shot him. A great study in adjusting behavior of animals my dad gave us. All right, so that's stuck in my head, right? What would make a Baptist preacher say the things that my dad said about that dog? And so now when my dog barks, what, Teresa's dog, um, (laughs) when he barks like that, I immediately start going, my neighbors are going to be really upset. I don't want to be that neighbor. So let me stop for a second there. I'm going to come back to the Nanook thing for just a second. The dog whisperer part of me now takes you to a discussion with Nanook. And so I sit him down and I'm having this mental conversation with him. Man, you got to stop barking. And he says, Dad, I can't stop barking. I just can't stop. I, I see those squirrels and I just can't stop. I'm just a dog, you know. Okay, now, let's be serious, and let me pull that right straight to home for us. That is the mentality that many people have about their habitual sin. I just can't stop. It's it's just like, well, you know, I'm just human after all. It's the lie that we tell ourselves about our sin that seems to let us off the hook for our sin just can't stop the problem with that is that the power behind that begins to overwhelm us to the point hear me really carefully now to the point that it doesn't even become temptation for us anymore it just becomes normal for us that sin does we like to say you know i I'm afraid I'm going to fall into temptation. No, if you're really honest, the fact of the matter on this one, you jump at the chance. You're not falling into it. And all of us have something like that, and it could be any number of things, but we make it normal, and we make it acceptable. I just can't help it. I want us to get theological for a second, and let's get behind the statement for a Christian to say, I just can't help it, is another way of saying God is not capable of helping me with this. 
Now, I, I know that that's a, li- it's a little bit strong. And as somebody in the first service said, after it was over, said, boy, we should have worn my steel-toed boots. Well, if you think I'm stepping on your toes, you misinterpret because I'm not shooting for your toes, I'm shooting for your heart. This is the sin that we just embrace. I just can't help it. Theologically, what's behind that is this belief that says, I don't believe God can help me with that. Or it's just outright rebellion. I don't want God to help me with that because I really kind of like this sin. Let's take a test case and work through this. Um, I'm looking here and I'm trying to pick out a couple of people that I can figure out what their best sin is and I'll... Okay, so I won't do that. If you're visiting with us, I would never do that. So let me pick on me, okay? Let's pick a sin. Oh, let's call it overeating. In the first service, somebody told me not to pick that one. So (laughs) I guess you all figured out I am talking about me. If uh, this, you know, Kevin... Our Kevin, right? Got that? Okay. <laughs> Kevin, you know, served in the armed forces for a while, and then he was a police officer for a while. And Kevin knows how to handle firearms. So if Kevin came up to me, and you came up to me, and you put a bucket of bluebell ice cream in front of me, First of all, I'm going to know you're trying to kill me now. I'm going to appeal to the cop part of him and say, get their name before I eat this. But you put a bucket of bluebell ice cream in front of me, and Kevin walks up beside me and holds a gun to my head and says to me, don't you eat that or I will pull this trigger and kill you right here. I got to tell you, I'm not eating any of it. Because I'm smart enough to know he's crazy. He'll shoot me. (laughs) Now, you catch me on any other day of the week, at least before this past January, and you throw a bucket of bluebell in front of me, even though I know overeating is a sin, if I don't have any other reason not to, I'm going to eat it. The point is that if I can ever in any circumstance say, I'm not going to do that, then to say I can't help it is a lie. You with me? So let's be real about this. When we say our society says, well, I just can't help it. That's just the way I am. That's a lie. That's saying God is not capable of helping me say no to that sin. It's not the same thing. Let me say it this way. To say I can't help it is just not true. To say that's hard, Brother Mark, I don't know if I can do that. That's a different statement. That's a much more honest statement. It's hard. This sin is so much a part of my life, this overeating, this pride, this gossip, this lust, this whatever yours happens to be. To say I'm just going to stop it, well, that, that's hard. I'm with you. You better believe it's hard. 
And so part of what we need in that is the motivation in the moments where we are the weakest. How can I say no to this? Instead of just going, well, you know, I I just can't help it. It's a great statement. You know, the old statement is you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. You know, that's a lie. As my dad said one time, you feed that horse enough salt before he gets to water, he'll want to take a drink when it's all said and done. Isn't that true? I guess. I don't know horses, but I, I do know this. If I have, let's put it on children, all right, because I see a few parents out here. All right, from, <laughs> we spent some time with our daughter over the last few days, went to see her uh, new apartment where they moved, and we walked in, and I thought, Lord, I'm so glad she doesn't live in my house anymore. <laughs> and I can remember, actually, it looked nice, pretty nice. I mean, it was okay. Um, uh, <laughs> I can remember times with Lauren. Lived like a pig, that girl did. And I can remember her mother saying to her from time, Lauren, you get that room cleaned up. Now, Teresa never left it at you get that room cleaned up, all right? So I'm going to take it off her and put it on me. Often, the rest of that was you get that room cleaned up or I'm going to chop off your leg. (laughs) Might as well get all of their attention while you're getting it, right? But here's the deal with that, right? If you say to your children, you clean up your room or else... Let me tell you something, or else means nothing to a child, okay? Chop off a leg, they get that. <laughs> Especially if you start on their little brother or sister by chopping off a toe. <laughs> uh, now, don't do that, all right? Don't do that. And certainly don't tell them your preacher told you to do that. <laughs> what we're talking about is motivation. And it's motivation to do the things that we don't want to do. I'm talking about an habitual sin here, the thing that we really do kind of like to do. Remember what I said a number of weeks ago? We like a little bit of darkness with our light. So we need the motivation to help us break free from that. If the lie is, I can't do it or I can't help it, the reality is, yes, you can. Here's how John answers both for us. Here's why, yes, you can works. And here's the motivation that we need. Look at the second part of verse 18. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now here, he shifts from those of us who continue to sin. The way he writes that, the language of the verb there is such that it's this ongoing habitual sin. But then he shifts it, and he talks about to that one who was born of God who protects him. Now he's talking about Christ. And so to say, I can't help it, John's answer to that is, yes, you can, because you are the son of the son of God, the child of the son of God. Jesus himself protects you. So let's just be honest with this one. We jump at the chance to sin. It's not that we fall into that, because Jesus himself holds us and says, don't go there. And we often push him aside and say, no, I got to go. That's the first one, and I'm out of time. Let me give you the second one because this is really my favorite one. Let me go back to my dog. The first one was, I can't help it. Here's the second one. It's much like it, but it's a little different, okay? The nuance is different here. This is the lie that society says to us. Uh, it's, I, I can't be held responsible for my sin. Oh, man, the art America has perfected this one. 
Why are we rioting in the streets? Well, you want the real answer to that? Seems like a fun thing to do to me. Now, we can put all kinds of stuff on it, but we, we want to hold other people responsible. And then we do bad behavior. And then we say, well, I'm not responsible for that. It makes no sense at all. Let me go back to my dog, okay? I could go to my neighbors, the ones I'm worried about because of this crack dog who's barking all the time. I could go to my neighbors and I could say to them, you know what? I'm really sorry about my dog. Uh, but after all, he's just a dog. And so I can't be held responsible for what he does. You know what's wrong with that? I am responsible for what he does in this case. So let me tell you how I handled that. I went down to the pet store and I bought one of these cool little collars. And these little collars are, are designed in such a way to help dogs discover electricity. And so I put this, this was last Monday, I put this on my dog, right? I had to shave his neck down some, that's fun. Uh, and I, so I put this thing on him and the way this collar works is the first bark, uh, it's a little bit of a vibration, now, I did not try it on just to tell you this. I, I read the deals, okay? You know, as a teenager, I would have put it on and I would have been barking to see how it worked. But first bark, just a little vibration. Second bark, kind of a you know, little bit of a jolt vibration again. Uh, but the, it's designed that every time he barks in a short period of time, it gets stronger. And so I put it on him and I'm just waiting. If I'd have had a squirrel, I'd have thrown it into the backyard. <laughs> got to be honest, okay? <laughs> and all afternoon, nothing from the dog. Every once in a while, he'd give a low, you know, low bark, but nothing too much. And then Teresa gets home, and I don't know if when she pulled up, it scared the squirrels or what, but as she's walking into the house, I hear my dog in the backyard, rough, Oh, I loved it. It was great. And for the rest of the afternoon, every once in a while, he'd give that loud bark and then he'd whoop. You know what? He doesn't bark anymore when he's wearing that collar. You see, it is my responsibility with him. And when I take responsibility that's mine, the problem gets handled. One of the problems we have in American society today is we are raising generation upon generation of people who refuse to take responsibility for their own behavior. Now, here's my concern. We can get all up in arms civically, politically, and just wink at it spiritually. We want other people to take responsibility for their actions, but I don't want to take responsibility for my sin. It, and it just, it's not going to work. Here's a good truth for you. God is not going to hold someone else responsible for your sin. You are responsible for your sin. Here's, here's where I get this out of this verse, these verses. Again, but he who, this verse 18, but he who was born of God protects him, that is Christ is involved with you. Listen to this, and the evil one does not touch him. In other words, you cannot say the devil made me do this. 
Matter of fact, verse 19 takes it even further. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In other words, if you're a child of God and you are habitually sinning, God says to you, that's not on the devil, that's on you. Because if you abide in Christ, he protects you. And temptation will come. But you don't have to jump at it. As a matter of fact, if I understand the message that John is saying, if we really understand what it means to abide in Christ, life is better. And you don't live at the mercy of that habitual sin and its consequences in your life. So the answer, and we'll finish this next week. The whole series comes to a close next week. John will say it here in the end. We'll talk about it next week. Verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. In other words, those things that you put in the position of God in your life are killing you spiritually. Let's pray. As we go into invitation, very simply it's this. I'm... I'm really wanting us to take ownership of our own stuff here. You, you don't really need the preacher up here telling you what your problem is. You know that. You know those pieces of your life that dishonor God. And so in this invitation time, I was just going to encourage you to hear the words of that. We do not live under the power of the evil one. We are children of God. <clears throat> So that area of your life where you're most prone to sin, if there is habitual sin in your life, why don't you let this next few moments be a point of surrender for you? Let it be last words for you as you start into a new approach to living the Christian life. Father, we ask you to change lives now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's